The second season of Anabaptist Perspectives is approaching its end. On May 21, we are scheduled to publish the 50th episode for season 2, which means that since we published our first episode in January of 2018, we have published more than 100 episodes. Each episode costs several hundred dollars to produce. We value the work of our team of editors, so we reimburse them for the skill and time that they devote to the weekly episodes. Also, since we are based in Tennessee, most of our guests are only accessible through road trips. This also requires considerable expense. After Season 2 ends, we plan to take a several month break from releasing episodes, but we will still be hard at work preparing for Season 3. For this next season to continue as planned, we need the help of our listeners who believe in this work and share our vision. During the next month, our hope is to raise $10,000. If you would like to help the work of Anabaptist Perspectives to continue, consider becoming a monthly patron or a one-time donor. Find information about your giving options at anabaptistperspectives.org. I'm here with Finney Caravella. We're in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm here at Sattler College, which I believe you're the founder and had a lot to do with, with that getting started. But something I actually learned yesterday that, that interests me is you require your students to complete um, a certain number of classes in biblical languages. Can you just walk us through that? Like, why study biblical languages? And, and what's your past with with studying biblical languages? Yeah, so you're right. So we require everyone to do one year of Hebrew and one year of Greek. There. Mm-hmm. So I got started in biblical languages while I was in medical school. Mm-hmm. And while I was in med school, I, I read a lot of books in the Christian world. And you know how it is where you'll be reading a book and it'll say in the Greek, it says blah, 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 blah. <laughs> sure. And then you read that and you think, okay, well, I guess I'm just going to trust you. And I remember once being in a library of a local church and opening up this book. And it had a section in the book where in the footnotes there was Greek, there were Greek letters on it. And I didn't know, I didn't know a word of Greek. And I saw mm-hmm. those characters there and I closed the book and I said, you know what? I'm too intimidated by this. I'm just not going to even take a crack okay. at it. And you, you quickly realize that there's a glass ceiling that's mm-hmm. there where there's a whole world of deep thought that occurs where, mm-hmm. where if you really want to get into the Bible, you, you need to use biblical languages. One of the best analogies that I heard years ago was, saying, imagine that you're married to a woman who speaks a foreign language, say she speaks Italian or Chinese. Are you going to live your life with an interpreter, always having to broker your conversations? Wow. And, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. You know, I thought like, yeah, obviously not. You know, somebody's got to learn the other person's language mm-hmm. if you're really going to have a close relationship. Mm-hmm. And I certainly don't want to say that it's impossible to to relate to the Bible and have a great relationship with the Bible without without the the original languages but there's going to be a barrier in between mm-hmm. you and the text and no matter what you're always going to be reading the mm-hmm. bible through that interpreter and i just eventually got so frustrated with that glass ceiling and with that sense of barrier mm-hmm. that i said you know what i want to take a class in greek and so actually it's just about a block from here i mm-hmm. i started taking biblical greek it was in i think 2002 Mm-hmm. and just fell in love with it. And once you get into it, and once you realize that, one, it's not as hard as you might think, particularly with Greek, where there's so many words in English that come from Greek. Yeah. And two, once you can actually read the New Testament in the original language, it's a rush like no other. You know, I, I'm ethnically Indian. I grew up in, in Southern California, and mm-hmm. we would go to India often, 
And I remember being with my dad and with other people and watching them switch to different languages just on the fly and mm-hmm. engage with people. It's like a superpower, right? I mean, it's, it's hard to capture how impressive that is and how, how, at least in my opinion, how, how incredibly vital that is mm-hmm. to be a, a person who can move between mm-hmm. different, different areas and different uh, cultures very seamlessly. And that kind of superpower that people have who can speak different languages uh, with great skill, it's a very similar ability with being able to engage in the biblical mm-hmm. text with Hebrew or Greek. So basically, you went to this other school, um, took a few classes. How, how in-depth did you go? So, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a whole story there. It was actually mm-hmm. through a church, and it okay. was just once a week. It was mm-hmm. every Sunday afternoon. It was like, I think, two hours, two or three hours each afternoon for a mm-hmm. whole year. Oh, wow. And, and by the end of it, the deliverable was the teacher of the, Greek, of the Greek class said that we'll be able to read the book of First John with decent proficiency. So as it turns out, there's another interesting thing, is when you read the Bible in the original languages, mm-hmm. you, you quickly learn that each writer has his own style and difficulty. So John is very easy to read. And mm-hmm. so John writes in very simple Greek. You go to, say, Luke or Paul, it'll take you 10 seconds and you realize these are very learned people and that their Greek is just much more sophisticated. Mm-hmm. And so you really can't get into Paul meaningfully until you probably had another year of Greek or so to get mm-hmm. just that additional level of competency mm-hmm. in, in the language. So that's, that's another fun element, though, is just being able to, to perceive all the stylistic differences between the authors because the translations just flatten it all out. Yeah. You, know, you don't really get that texture and that difference and style when you read it in English mm-hmm. uh, there. So anyways, that was the delivery that we, the, the deliverable that we had at the mm-hmm. end of it was being able to do the book of First John. That's really interesting. So now you've already kind of hinted at this, but can you just give us a, an overview of how this benefited you in your personal Christian walk? Huge. So, you know, one of the things that, that, this, that this benefited me, so first is now when I heard someone in a pulpit or in a book say, well, in the Greek it says da 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 it means mm-hmm. this, or it means that, well, now I have some kind of basis to assess that. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that at least half the time when you hear that expression used, when they say it means X, Y, Z, it doesn't mean X, Y, Z. And they've, they've done really sloppy, poor work, mm-hmm. and it's probably secondary, tertiary, or quaternary reference to something. And so I've learned to take all those things with a grain of salt mm-hmm. because, like I said, there's just a lot of misinformation and urban myths out there. So it gives you a level of confidence to engage mm-hmm. that you just you can't really have unless you've gone through that. So that's mm-hmm. invaluable. And this is not a ministry that I think everyone needs to necessarily have, but for those who want a, uh, a ministry of being able to engage with Protestants, mm-hmm. with people who are professing Christians, who hold to different beliefs, well, they claim the same book, obviously, and they're going to say, well, you know, what about this passage? What about that passage? And Mm -hmm. to the extent that you can be confident and be able to engage with them in, in, you know, the the, the various books and preachers and commentaries and all those things that are there, Mm -hmm. it's incredibly useful. And I personally feel a calling that one of my ministries is to engage with the Protestant evangelical world mm. and say, hey, let's read the Bible together. Because we do have that shared norm, that, sh- that mm. shared standard. And that, that capacity to do that without biblical languages is severely hindered. So I would really encourage people who, mm-hmm. who want that ministry of, of being 
prophetic exegetical warriors, if you will. You know, one of the the, the ministries really of of those who who want to have that that prophetic role is to be those who can challenge people to be faithful to a text, mm-hmm. and to be faithful to a text again is mm-hmm. so much more easily done if you have the mm-hmm. ability to directly engage. What's also interesting is that. So the, the standards have changed a lot mm-hmm. over the years. So it used to be the case that every single person who went to the original colleges in mm-hmm. America, mm-hmm. Harvard and Yale and, and Princeton and places like that, it was required that to graduate at the end of four years, you showed proficiency in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And if you didn't, you were just not even really a literate member of society. That, and, and that's only four years, like in your first four, four years? Well, four, of course, now, people were doing Latin at a much earlier age, and you know they wow. were do, engaging in, in preparation before. But what but it goes still. to show is that as a society, as a nation, back then, in the 1600s and 1700s, they had such a, a belief in the value of the scriptures yeah. that they said to, again, be a literate member of society, you need to do the biblical languages. And, and so we had that, and today, except for Sattler College, Zero colleges have that as a requirement. Mm-hmm. So we got, we went from 100% of colleges requiring proficiency in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. We only hmm. require Hebrew and Greek. We don't require Latin to exactly one Southern college that requires <laughs> Hebrew and Greek. And so I, what I think it reflects wow. is that the general societal belief or value of, of the Word of God engaging in primary sources mm-hmm. has just diminished tremendously over the centuries. And, and I know we're going a little off script here, but is this part of the mindset or the attitude that, oh, I can just pick it up and read it for myself and I don't have to. Absolutely. You know, I don't yeah. have to dive deep. I don't have to go to primary sources. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So uh, there's this notion that is called solo scriptura, not sola scriptura, but solo. Oh. And and uh, it's a neat little pun there that someone has, has created where it, it really began in the 19th century, but we're now in a period where people believe that they are the adjudicator of truth. Hmm. And instead of having a pope, hmm. there's a pope in every pulpit. There's a, a dynamic where you have this widespread, distributed hmm. belief that everyone can hmm. independently access the truth without reference or deference to primary sources to say what the early church believed to all those things and that has led to this explosion in denominations and across the board in all different stripes and where you have now so many different people who frankly import their own biases and their own prejudices to the text and form their own theologies that are really the product of their own mind as opposed to anything that's that's well grounded in scripture or in church history. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't have thought of that of where if everybody's just kind of becoming their own scholar, I guess, without actually doing the time. Yeah, you know, exactly. To, yeah. And and a, a very lazy, undisciplined mm-hmm. approach. And when you take that approach, you get poor conclusions, not surprisingly. And yeah. you know, here we're right here in the middle of a week of Bible school and I just had students go through Romans nine to eleven, mm-hmm. which is a text that Calvinists love. Uh, very famous text right in the heart of the book of Romans, John 6, John 10, Ephesians 1. And all of those texts are, are examples where mm-hmm. they read them, and I think they would all say that they read them one way coming in, and now that they've gone deeper, they read them totally differently. I certainly read them totally differently. And wow. I see that the Protestant evangelical perspectives on those mm-hmm. passages as just ludicrous and wow. so poorly done and shoddy scholarship. Uh, and, and a really lazy, undisciplined approach to exegesis. And so again, mm-hmm. the biblical languages are a great way to get started in this, right? And mm-hmm. again, I don't want to be 
snotty or you know say like oh you you must do this to be a Christian mm -hmm. or anything like that. I don't want to say that because it is something that I believe is is not for everyone and it's mm -hmm. something that is to be a ministry of those who want to be teachers mm -hmm. engage in this exegetical discussion engage with parties outside of the four walls or whatever group you might be a part of yeah. and for that as I said it's a very valuable tool so so you've laid out a pretty clear case why someone mm -hmm. should study biblical languages. So now let's say someone in our audience wants to do that. What's the next step? Where do you even begin a process like this? Yeah, it's hard to do on your own. And mm -hmm. the reason it's hard to do on your own is it's it's difficult to do. There's a couple of different ways of doing biblical languages. And this is maybe a little bit going beyond what you had meant in your question there, but mm -hmm. there's one way of doing languages, which is, it's called the grammar translation way of doing it, where okay. basically it's a highly intense approach where you, you learn and memorize tables, they're called paradigms mm -hmm. of endings. So a lot of people have done Spanish and languages like that and know what I'm talking about, where you'll, you'll, you'll learn a verb, lego is a Greek word that means I speak, mm. and you'll memorize, you speak legis, he speaks legi, we speak legomen, you plural speak legate, they speak legacy. And so you, you kind of learn these tables, you memorize them, and then you go word by word through a, a sentence or a verse and you, you parse it, it's called, where you figure out, okay. okay, this is the second person, singular, and then, okay, now I'm in a noun, that's in the nominative mm -hmm. case. And it's that's the way that most people learn Greek. Now, it's there's value in that, and, and I, I learned that way myself. The problem is, is that it's quite dry to do it that way, and to have someone who can help you through that process and give you that accountability and help you through that is invaluable. So very, very few people that I've ever met have been able to do it purely self-study. It's just, it's difficult. Mm -hmm. There's another way, which we do at Sattler College, which I like even more, where you say, okay, how do children learn languages? Because as it turns mm -hmm. out, God has made humans to be very good at speaking languages if you learn it in the ways that children learn languages. So when we learn, mm -hmm. As when we're young, we don't learn to read or write until many years later. We learn first by hearing and by responding to commands. Mm. Sit up, move over, drink this, sit down. And we, we learn in a very deep, visceral way how to connect sounds to kinesthetic patterns of actions and colors and objects. Mm -hmm. And you don't learn by memorizing tables, for sure. Mm -hmm. And even right now when we're talking, I'm not saying, okay, I'm talking to Reagan, so I gotta use second person singular. <laughs> when I'm talking about Dean Taylor, I'm gonna use third person, right? We don't do that. Yeah. It just comes out yeah. very naturally. And so there, what you wanna do in class is you wanna have the class be primarily in the target language from day one. Oh, so, wow. So okay. what, what we do here is day one, you'll hear uh, I'll go to you and say, Anastathy, and so that means stand up, and I'll make a motion, like stand up, and you'll figure it out, and you'll stand up, and I'll go to someone else, Anastathy, and they'll stand up, and then Kathison, and I'll make this motion, that means sit mm -hmm. down. And without knowing how anything is spelled, without knowing the Greek alphabet, you'll get an association, Anastathy, stand up, and you'll feel that because your muscles are doing that, Yeah. and hopefully you do that a yeah. hundred times, and you get this association, Anastathy means stand up, Kathison means sit down. And then you'll learn, you know, the word for table and the word for pen and all these things. Mm -hmm. And you, you feel it and you use it and you engage it. And then when you come into the New Testament text or the Old Testament Septuagint, your experience of reading is much closer to our experience of reading English. Mm -hmm. When we read, we're not parsing. I'm not asking, you know, is this a preposition? Is this a participle? I'm just, just reading it and somehow we, we figure yeah. it out, right? Yeah. And so that approach is called the communicative approach of languages. So there's grammar mm -hmm. translation. And then there's communicative. 
Communicative is way better if you have a teacher who knows how to do it. It's harder to do because mm-hmm. you need someone who's got a level of confidence where they're basically doing the vast majority of the class in Greek or in Hebrew. But we've recruited faculty and teachers who, who can do this, whose who's level of proficiency. It's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing, and yeah. I, I sat in the last class of our Hebrew program here that we had for our freshmen, and the last class was... I think it was all in Hebrew, or 90% of it was in Hebrew. And it was a discussion of Jonah and the structure of Jonah in Hebrew. And I thought, hey, that's great. That was a really good example of how, wow. how that can happen. And, and so if you go down that track, mm-hmm. this is another reason why it's better to learn a language in a community of people. You know, you don't learn English on your own, right? If you yeah. tried to learn English reading a textbook or something like that, it just wouldn't go very well. Mm-hmm. The, the best way to learn a language, whether it's English or Spanish or Chinese or Hebrew or Greek, is to do it in a group setting where you're hearing the language spoken mm-hmm. to you, you're experiencing it, and again, it's replicating much more of that experience that all of us have as children. And the thesis that I have is that a lot, a lot of people are language phobic because they, they, they say like, oh, I just can't learn a language, it's too hard, because yeah. they've, they've had bad pedagogical principles applied mm-hmm. where it's books and memorizing tables and things like that, and they're scarred, mm-hmm. and they write themselves off as, oh, I'm just bad with languages. Mm-hmm. Whereas in fact, if you can speak any language, then you know that you have an active language center in your brain and you probably can do very, very well if mm-hmm. you can simply get the right pedagogy applied to your, your learning situation. So that's one of the reasons why we're very excited about our language program at Sadler wow. College. That's a very interesting approach. To yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. And there's yeah. only a couple of places in the country wow. that do this. Uh, and in fact, the leading place that does it is actually in Israel, and so you know that's obviously a big hassle to move. <laughs> Which all. university? It's called Polis. Um, so that's yeah. uh, it's right in Jerusalem, and we actually had the founder of Polis come speak at Sattler late, wow. earlier this year. His name is Christoph Rico. So that's probably the top place in the world mm-hmm. for this type of approach, and we're trying to bring that to America and have a place that, Ooh. from the ground up, we're building out the communicative mm-hmm. approach towards languages. So let's narrow it in a little. You're you're discussing how. Sattler is going about this, the, the how it's going to be done. But walk me through the why. What is the desired outcome for your students when they take these classes? Yeah, so we're hoping that Sattler College becomes a place where people come to learn discipleship. Mm-hmm. So our main ambition mm-hmm. is to have this be a place where people are trained and then sent out to other cities in America and then ultimately globally. And mm-hmm. so the real vision here is to, as we say, light the world with relational discipleship and academic excellence. And then the, the main tagline we use is equipping Jesus' peaceful res- revolution. Mm. And so Jesus' peaceful revolution is obviously right at the heart of what I know you care about mm. with non-resistance. And I know what your church has been, mm. been doing an excellent job at advocating. And we're trying to do that systematically across mm. a wide range of kingdom teachings, whether mm. that includes non-resistance, separation from the world, Evangelism, you know, that's something that is so often neglected here. And one of our goals for our students is that they're going to be very involved, and they already are involved, in doing primary evangelism. In a, in a great city like Boston, where we're surrounded by about 5 million people here, there's wow. just a lot of open people. And so we want this to be a training ground where people can come and be mm-hmm. equipped, not to stay here, but ultimately to get launched back, either, like I said, into their home communities or go back or go out, rather, to new places in the world mm-hmm. and, and start there. But, you know, discipleship is something that is, it's one of my favorite words, and it's something that is 
generally misunderstood and poorly done. So, so people, when they think of discipleship, they think of a class, right? They think of like, oh yeah, my church has a discipleship class. I'm going to go and Tuesday evenings from seven to nine, I'm going to go and go through some workbook. And, mm-hmm. and hey, that's an aspect of it. I'm not downplaying that, but it's such mm-hmm. a small slice of what discipleship really represents. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, if we think about Jesus as the ultimate example of discipling, you know, he said, follow me. And he spent 24 seven with his disciples for three years. They saw how he ate, how he talked, how he prayed, how he spoke at synagogue, and they immersed in his in his world and his relationships mm. there. And it wasn't just, hey, I'm gonna have a class on Tuesdays with Jesus where he teaches us about the Torah, right? Mm. And that notion of, I sometimes say that discipleship is intensive companionship, where mm. you are learning from people who are further along and, and in, a, in an environment where you can do like I said, even the evangelism and those types of things is incredibly important. And so we have these, mm-hmm. these journey groups we, at Sattler. We have a lot of different facets that, that feed into that where we're hoping that, mm-hmm. that we, we get and communicate not just the head knowledge, but a whole way of life, which is really what discipleship is supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. And one of my burdens especially is evangelism and outreach starting in the U.S. You know, most mm-hmm. people, they have these ambitions to go abroad and, and do great things here, but before you do that, hey, make disciples here where you live, right? Yeah. Learn how to do that yeah. effectively before you think about going to some foreign country. And it's something that that many people struggle with, uh, but I think there's there's a great path for discipleship to be effective there. And we, we just had a baptism a couple weeks ago. I was the one who did the baptism, very excited about a young man from China who mm. came here and didn't know anything about Christianity, didn't know what the Bible was, didn't know anything. Wow. And, you know, to watch him go all the way from total novice, kind of an atheist Buddhist background to now being mm. a, a, a young, fledgling, but very excited disciple of Jesus is amazing. And I think wow. that that should be a major part of a young person's experience. When I was in college, back then I was still in the Protestant evangelical world, but mm-hmm. I, was, I was very involved in evangelism and I, I got to lead a number of people to the Lord when mm-hmm. I was in my late teens, early 20s. Mm-hmm. And people don't realize that that's some of the most precious time of your life or your effectiveness is incredible because people there are at that age are very moldable Mm -hmm. they're highly relational and you can be very very effective at evangelism and discipleship at that time period and it's much more difficult when you're later when you're Mm -hmm. in your 50s and 60s and people just tend to ossify and they lose some of that Mm -hmm. that dynamic moldability that they have and so again to be here from say 18 to you know say early Mm -hmm. 30s that time bracket that we're aiming for here and to say hey come learn how to do this get yourself equipped Mm -hmm. but in the context of that equipping learn how to equip others Mm -hmm. right and then and then once you've learned how to do that well then go go off and make Mm -hmm. make big ambitions to go to other places but walk before you run and Mm -hmm. it grieves me that I, i just don't think generally we're doing well in in any setting to, mm-hmm. to, to really do effective discipleship, which should be marked by, by fruit, mm-hmm. by making more disciples. Yeah, build, build a solid foundation to launch from. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Wow. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing, and um, that, the vision you're, you're casting here just is, is actually really awesome. I, I've never thought about it like that. For more information about Anabaptist Perspectives, to read our blog, to donate, and to see videos of the conversations you hear on this podcast, visit anabaptistperspectives.org. We love to hear from our audience.
experience, so leave your feedback in the comments for this podcast or send us a message through our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Anabaptist Perspectives. Thank you for listening to Anabaptist Perspectives. Your listening and sharing this with friends helps more people find our episodes. A special thanks to all of you who support Anabaptist Perspectives financially. We are here because of you. If you haven't had the chance to give yet this year, would you consider making a year-end donation? You can donate on our website or by check. Thank you so much for listening and supporting Anabaptist Perspectives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We invite you to join our monthly partner program. Monthly partners are key to the financial sustainability of Anabaptist Perspectives. Partners also gain access to bonus content, including our exclusive podcast where we respond to audience questions and comments. Sign up at anabaptistperspectives.org.